So one thing that differentiates us, I think, from a lot of subscriptions is that the subscribers, the customers are like totally in control. And by that, I mean, we don't just ship you something that you don't know what it is. We actually assign it to you and announce it ahead of time. Welcome to Subscriptions Scaled, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space, share their best tips and stories, and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Subscription Scaled. I'm your host, Nick Frederick. With me, our guest today is Jared Hales, who is the CTO over at Bespoke Post. Jared, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Glad to be here. Yeah, awesome. Well, excited to dive in here. I'm always happy to talk to a brand who's been in the space for a while. You know, a lot of our guests have only been around a couple of years, but I know you're one of the older brands. And so I'm hoping to learn some stories today about what you guys have been through. But for those of listeners who may not know, tell us a little bit about Bespoke Post and of course yourself, your background and what your role is there. Sure, sure. I'll start with the company. Um, so Bespoke Post, we're a box subscription company that I think I'd best describe as like, we're all about like product discovery. Our goal is to introduce customers to cool products. And most of the time that's from small, often under the radar brands. And as you alluded to, we've been around for a while. The company was started in 2011 by Rishi and Steve, our two co-founders. They envisioned it as a subscription box company, like targeted toward men. And they launched it at the end of 2011 with the, the very first box. It was like a, a whiskey themed box that, you know, Steve and Rishi packed themselves in. I think they were in one of their apartments with all family and friends gathered around and probably some of the same people packing might've been the recipients of a couple of those first boxes. Okay. But um, yeah, you know, very kind of typical scrappy, you know, do it yourself kind of thing as they got started and they really, you know, it really just took off. So we've expanded over the years. The subscription box is still the bread and butter of what we do, but we also have a full e-commerce shop that's stocked with thousands of items and we have some of our own private label brands at this point that we're selling both on the shop and through the box program that we've built from the ground up. And at this point, we don't market just toward men. I mean, the majority of our members are men because that's how we started. I think that's how like the market kind of sees us, but we've expanded our assortment and our marketing to be more like all inclusive. And really it's like, you know, anyone who's interested in the products that we sell is signing up these days. So that's kind of a quick overview, I guess. Okay. Yeah. How long have you been there? So I've been here for eight years. So I wasn't quite there for the first couple of years of packing boxes in an apartment or even they first went, they went through an accelerator program and then they worked in like a co-working space. And then I was there, I got hired right as the, the company moved into their first real offices. So I think I was employee, I think it was 11. So it was still pretty small. It was definitely the kind of thing where we could all, we we're all sitting in a room that was a little too big for the size of the team at the time, but we could all see each other and all like collaborate very easily. And anytime there was a problem or I needed to work with someone else, it was as simple as just, you know, maybe taking off my headphones and like looking across the desk. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's been my journey. And I've been here for the past, for the past eight plus years, as we've seen a lot of growth and the company's a lot bigger now. I think still pretty small in terms of like employees and the size of our business. I think we're we're somewhere in the like 80 to 90 employee range. Hard to keep track as you know, we've been growing a lot these past few years, but yeah, that's the general gist of it. So you're the CTO now. Where did you start when you came into the company? 
So I think my first title was, I guess, like lead engineer, maybe. Uh, I'm trying to remember, actually. I remember Rishi asked what I wanted my title to be. And I said, I don't, I don't think it really matters. We're a startup and there's 10 people in the room. So it was me. All right. Yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> I had one engineer that was working for me yep. when I started who... Do what needs to be done was like recently promoted from our intern to be an engineer. And I was replacing the former like founding engineer who had helped build like the initial MVP. Wow. So being that the company is now over 10 years old and you were there at the beginning, have you guys had a build it first mentality? Because there weren't as many tools back on the market 10 years ago as there is now. So were you guys building a lot of things back then? Yeah, yeah. We made maybe like an unconventional choice. I wasn't there for the discussion about this, but I did like inherit what came of it, that we were going to build our own e-commerce platform, like the e-commerce side of the business, because we always, while we were subscription focused, we always envisioned that there would be an ad hoc, you know, e-commerce side of the business. And so you have these two different shopping models where it's subscription on one hand, but then also a more traditional like shopping cart, like you'd have on Amazon or Shopify. And so when you looked at like what was available back then, there were some solutions for like recurring subscription charges, but a lot of those are based really toward like maybe SaaS models where it's going to be something like, oh, you're billed $15 a month. And then that on the, you know, whatever day, and it just always happens. And on the other hand, a lot of the e-commerce platforms or tools that were out there were really just strictly e-commerce with traditional shopping cart. So we realized to do what we want to do, we're going to have to take one of those options and then bolt on a ton of custom code. And so the decision was, why don't we build our own, which I think probably made for like a painful start in terms of it was just a lot to get done. But then once we had done that, we now have a system that was built from the ground up with our needs in mind. And so it's pretty well suited to what we want. And we've been able to like build and grow upon it. So at this point, I would say like the core system is pretty mature. And now it's more, it's served us well. And I think like we've been able to kind of grow it responsibly and like keep the code clean, keep it like well suited to what we want to do so that we have like a solid base to like build things on. So that's still the case now. You still have the homegrown system. You haven't migrated to some other third-party platform. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the very, very first version was uh, something that Rishi, one of the co-founders, had cobbled together. He did go to school for computer science, but I think aside from that and then the initial version of uh, Bespoke Post hasn't done a lot of like it hasn't worked like professionally as like an engineer. So he used the skills he had to get an initial proof of concept going. But then, yeah, after, I want to say it was probably maybe 20, late 2012 or so, or early 2013, they had built the, the Ruby on Rails application that we're still using to this day, at least the basic part of it. It's grown a lot. The code base is a lot bigger now, but yeah. You're highlighting something there I've talked about many times, which is a subscription company that wants to get into e-com or transactional business and then, or vice versa, right? Somebody who's always been e-com and now wants to get into subscription. So any particular lessons or things you guys learned along the way back then that you were like, oh, I didn't appreciate that we were going to have to do this and this and kind of the complexities that that created? Um well, I mean, for myself, I think I had a little bit of uh, some learnings quickly when I started, when I was handed this code base and I looked at it, I'd seen the website, I was familiar with, with what the company was doing. And then I looked at the code base and I had never worked in e-commerce. I'd worked in plenty of like consumer facing web applications, but not e-commerce specifically. 
And there was just so much stuff happening underneath the hood that I kind of hadn't thought about. It totally made sense once you start thinking about it, but there's a lot of business logic that you have to build to handle all the different concerns with e-commerce. So that was maybe my personal lesson learned. In terms of, for us as a company, like more broadly speaking, I think we definitely are learning maybe better ways to do things, but I think it's been kind of like a really healthy approach where I like to keep things simple when we're building things. Like let's not build something anticipating what we're gonna need in five years because what we think now we're gonna need in five years. It's wrong. <laughs> yeah. So much stuff is gonna change. Like, yeah, right. We're gonna get some of it wrong. So thankfully, I think we were have been pretty good about not over-engineering things, not not anticipating too much what's around the corner and just kind of building for the immediate needs of like, what are we facing now? And what are we like anticipating in the near future? And then being kind of content with things that are good enough, because if something takes off, we will have the opportunity. We'll have the, we'll, we'll be able to like improve it later, but we'll do it with like more knowledge, more experience, more, more kind of like battle scars to kind of, we know what we need to address. We're not- it, And some revenue to justify it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And similarly, I mean, not maybe not as applicable to like the core business, but like maybe some of the ideas that we've had along the way by starting them off as like more bare bones proof of concepts, it's a lot less expensive to launch them and a lot easier to throw them away if it doesn't work. Yeah, that's true. It's a good perspective. Yeah, so I think that's I think that philosophy has kind of been the way that we've always done it on the engineering side. And I think it's been a good one for us to pursue it that way. Yeah. Do you guys view yourselves as an agile shop? Are you working in sprints or do you take more of a waterfall approach? Uh, no, we do more of, I mean, I guess I'd say we're agile. We don't cling too tightly to any like single methodology. I feel like people say agile and what they mean is it can be kind of a loaded term, right? I think for us, we follow something I'd most closely classify as like a Kanban methodology. So it's not sprints, but it's, we're working from a prioritized backlog. We're deploying all the time. So, I mean, it is a small team though. So it might look like there might be a week where we're deploying multiple times, maybe every day. And then there might be a week where we hardly deploy anything because most of the team is working on like bigger features, but we don't carve it up into sprints. We just try to do this continuous delivery, get stuff, get one thing through the pipeline as fast as possible and get it out to production before you start on something else. And so when the whole team does that, we kind of can minimize the time it takes to get like new ideas out there and in front of customers. So to dig into that a little bit, because I'm very curious, we have played with these models ourselves and beginning to think Kanban actually is the best of kind of both worlds. Sprints sound good in theory, but are hard, are hard to practice. When you guys are looking at the backlog, first of all, are you relying on product managers to put things into the backlog? But how do you guys prioritize and decide who's going to take things next and kind of what that workload could be? Because I'm sure you've got sales and probably product people who are saying, when am I going to get it? When am I going to get it? And that can kind of make it hard in a Kanban world. Yeah, I think you're right. It definitely, there's no easy answer to like, what do you do next? Because someone has to make that call. And so, I mean, at the moment, it's not really me in the sense that we have two product people that like, that's their whole job is gathering the requirements, getting the work ready and prioritizing it. And of course, like they're not doing that separate from engineering. We're very involved, but you know, they're consulting with us. We're talking about things, but ultimately they're the ones who are kind of reconciling when, oh, the marketing crew is asking for this thing. 
And one of our co-founders really wants us to do this. And meanwhile, customer service is running into a problem in the back end. They're three totally, totally like separate concerns. They don't overlap. And you have to make the call of like, okay, well, I have to put something has to be one, two, and three, which, how do you do it? I think it's just a judgment call. You have to, we usually look at things in terms of level of effort and like uh, the impact. And so then you kind of have this value ratio of like, okay, what, what's going to be like high value or getting the most return for the effort and time put into it. And I think it's generally that is what, how we're using to prioritize things. And then at the same time, also, if maybe there's some of those like low impact kind of things that just keep continually being deferred, you just kind of have to slip those in at times and just, you got to squeaky wheel items. Yeah, you just have to, you can't totally ignore them. So you can't have like a team or a concern that you totally ignore, but it might be the kind of thing where, yeah, maybe you're saying to one of your partners in the company that you work with a lot, like, hey, I can do like one thing for you in the next few weeks. What's the one thing that you want that we can get the engineering team to work on? And then we'll come back to you when we have more time. And, you know, it might not always happen as quick as everyone would like, but we're pretty transparent about it. So everyone knows what's happening, why, and, and they also know what we're working on that's been deemed more important. And so hopefully if we've all at the organization done our jobs right with being like working toward the OKRs that we've established and communicated that, evangelized it out to the rest of the company, we're all kind of on the same page. It makes sense. It doesn't seem like arbitrary or like favoritism that we're doing one thing versus another. Well, if someone's been deprioritized, at least they were part of the conversation and know why that they were and know the other higher value items that have been put above them, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. How much, how low of a level do you guys go into scoping a feature request in terms of level of effort and timelines before embarking down the road of actually delivering it? Do you guys want to know it's going to cost or take this many hours and it's going to take this many weeks to deliver? Or are you like, eh, t-shirt size, let's go. Yeah, it's more like t-shirt sizing. If you want to have really good estimates, you're going to have to spend a lot of time on that. So like the estimation itself becomes a cost. It does. So I think for us, we're generally not doing that. I think when we talk about bigger items, something that's going to be larger in scope, take longer time, have more, especially if it's like really cross-functional, that those are the kind of things, or, or maybe it involves like a third party or something where there's like a, a big contract in the mix. It's like, you kind of want to know what you're signing up for, for those kinds of things. So there, it makes sense to dig in deeper. But for a lot of the like everyday feature requests and enhancements, we're not, it's more of t-shirt sizing. Going back to your homegrown system for a minute, a couple of areas that I think, especially you guys doing subscriptions and e-com together, that could get a little bit complicated are on the inventory and fulfillment side, and then the payment side. So maybe can you talk about those two areas and kind of how you guys view it? Do you separate those things into two separate worlds, meaning subscriptions and e-com, or do you, have you found a way to make them both work in harmony at the same time? Sure. I guess I'll start by saying like, we outsource some of that. So on the fulfillment side, we work with a 3PL, a third-party logistics company. So we have a warehouse and they really handle all of the where things are on shelves, getting things into boxes, getting labels printed. So for us, it's really just like actually shipping something is an API call. You know, I could say, send this item to Nick at this address, use FedEx, and then they're going to acknowledge it and return a tracking label to me. 
And so that is really nice. It means my team doesn't have to write all the like warehouse management code. And done, right? Which can be a lot. <laughs> um, then on the billing side, we work with Braintree. We don't want to be writing, I don't want credit card numbers in my database. I don't want to have to deal with that, all the headaches that come there. But in terms of the actual like billing customers, we have written our own code to handle that. So we have like a billing process. I mean, that's a really good example actually of something we built incrementally because of meeting the needs of where we were at and then expanding it as it, we grew. So like the initial version of that, I think was probably just like literally like firing up a command line command to like build something and running the job and just waiting for it to finish. And we didn't have a lot of customers. It was like a single process. It just went. And then, you know, when it's done, it's done. You know, you collect the output and see if any problems arose. And then we kind of went from that to being able to take the underlying code there and maybe dispatch it for if we have 20 boxes that we're shipping in a month. Okay, let's build box A, let's build box B, but it's still like more of a manual like dispatch of those. And then as we got bigger and that was taking longer, like maybe a billing job would take like five hours to run and we're like, okay, this is just too slow. So now we've built like this, it's a pretty nice tool where everything can be scheduled in advance and things are done in parallel. And so we could run a job to say like, okay, let's build 20,000 orders. We're gonna let them go in parallel started at 10 p.m. tonight, and then we'll send it to the warehouse first thing in the morning. And so like, that's a great example of like, we definitely didn't have the need for that at the beginning, so we didn't build it. And it was a pretty complicated thing to build. Yeah, well, so it evolved with the business and kind of how it grew then. For sure, it definitely did. Yeah, in today's world, are you guys, are you fulfilling, billing and fulfilling all throughout the month or are you batching up customers into certain billing and fulfillment days? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, our model is, I, I think, a little unique. I'll back up a little bit and tell you a little bit about how it works in terms of like the subscription model. And then we can talk about the billing cadence. So one thing that differentiates us, I think, from a lot of subscriptions is that the subscribers, the customers are like totally in control. And by that, I mean we don't just ship you something that you don't know what it is. We actually assign it to you and announce it ahead of time. You'll get your assigned box. Like uh, you'll be notified of it on the first of the month. You have five days to decide if you want it or not. And during those five days, you can choose to keep what we assigned you. You could skip the month entirely for free. We're not going to charge you or you could swap it out or even add to it. So if you wanted to get two or three boxes because you see a bunch of stuff you like, or you wanna add some stuff from the e-commerce shop, you can add stuff to your monthly club shipment. So I think that's really good for the customer experience because it's not, it's not one of those things where you're just kind of rolling the dice, you get a charge and then you're like, well, I'll see what shows up in a week. And then something is delivered and you're like, oh, a cocktail making kit. I already have one of these, <laughs> you know? Or I don't drink. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right, right. Um, so I think because of that's the basis for like how the program works, which I think has like a lot of pluses and minuses. But um, because of real quick, is that in that five day period, is it opt into the box or opt out? It is opt out. Okay. So you are assigned a box and it's populated into your shipment, but that shipment is kind of like a it's an open order that you can modify. In many ways, it's kind of like a shopping cart. Like you can see what's in there and you can add and remove stuff. But we, 
I don't know if we message it as locking to customers, but basically we have a internally, the way it's implemented is it has got a lock point in time. And once it hits that lock point, it can't be modified any longer. And then it gets, it can get queued up to be billed. And then if we can bill your credit card successfully, we'll ship it out to you. And so, so customers do have to, if they don't want to get the box, they do have to proactively do something. And so there are some customers that are, they kind of like the surprise and they just, they do just kind of run it on autopilot where they just sign up. They tell us the things that they're into. And then they're like, yeah, surprise me every month. I'm not going to ever sign in and pay attention. And they just get a box every month, whatever we happen to send to them. And then there's people that are very, very proactive about managing it. Like they're picking stuff out every month, sometimes like very carefully considering what they want, maybe skipping a lot because they don't want to, they want to like limit their spending. And that's totally fine. Like we're pretty happy with that because our hypothesis has been that giving customers that kind of control makes them stick around for longer, you know? Sure. Yeah. It's engagement, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so your question about billing. So what we do with that is once we have, once we get past the fifth of the month, we will start billing and shipping boxes. But since the fulfillment of all of this stuff can be pretty complicated, we'll usually space it out over like somewhere between one to two weeks, probably it probably ends up being about like 10 days most of the time, sometimes faster. But basically, once that lock period starts, we'll, the warehouse will start building boxes or shipping out pre-kitted stuff, and they'll do it in waves. So it might be everybody who's getting this weekender bag, all of their stuff ships on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, we've got like three boxes lined up to go out the door. And so it's like a we have an operations team that's fantastic. They kind of coordinate and schedule all this stuff and figure out what the warehouse can handle. So they have control in the system. They can say, we're going to go do these boxes this day and those boxes another day and kind of decide how that's all going to be billed and sent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I think a decent amount of it is probably more traditional. It's not like a button. It's more like they're calling somebody at the warehouse and, and like planning it out, like what we're going to do this month, but they're pretty, they do it so frequently that like, it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty quick process. They're not like negotiating in like, spending a ton of time figuring out like, oh, what's the ideal sequence? I think they're pretty good at juggling, the, knowing what can be handled and juggling it and just lining it up and scheduling it. And then in our system, it is just as simple as like you go into the tool and it's like, okay, uh, here's the three boxes we're going to bill on Tuesday and get the job set up to bill and submit to the warehouse. Gotcha. When you say bill, does that mean you're taking all the customers that are getting this box and attempt to authorize their payment method? and then send the orders over, wait for them to be fulfilled, and then finalize the payment, uh, capture them? Or are you just running the whole process? We run the whole process because our warehouse will get stuff out the, that day. Okay. So it'll be, we stagger it based on the what we can handle in a day. So we will fully bill you. Like if your box was going to ship tomorrow, we might like tonight or early in the morning, bill your credit card. And if your payment goes through, then it's in the batch of like orders that all get sent to the warehouse first thing tomorrow morning. And then the warehouse, their goal is to like ship clean every day where like everything we've sent them is out. And most of the time we can do that. The one time where maybe that gets a little more complicated is probably holiday season or if something doesn't go as planned, which happens, but not as often as you'd think. They're like surprisingly good about like, we send them stuff and it gets out the door 
and a lot of packages get out the door. <laughs> what do you do in those situations where it couldn't get out the door or maybe we thought there was inventory and then it wasn't, so we couldn't ship these items? Like, what do you do? What do you contact the customer? Do you reverse authorizations? What happens then? No, I think we wouldn't reverse the charges. I mean, I think that would probably create more headache than, because it's not like, we're not generally talking about if it doesn't ship the day expected, it's probably shipping like first thing the next day. Okay. Right? It's usually that kind of thing. If there was a more an issue more of we thought there were 100 of these in the warehouse and they're actually damaged, so there aren't, then we're going to handle those differently. That's We would reverse the charges. We'd reach out to customers. We'd probably refund them, or maybe we offer them a replacement. It really would depend on the scenario. We have really good CX, like our customer experience team. They're really fantastic. They're really good at taking care of customers, communicating clearly, like taking care of that stuff. That's one thing we've always kind of prided ourselves on is that we've got really great people there. And we often will get like testimonials you know, from customers that we don't ask for, but we'll get an email yeah. where it's like, so-and-so on your CX team totally took care of me. This is what happened. I couldn't believe it. Those are the best. They were fantastic. And that wins customers. Like when that stuff is on social, For sure, it's like free advertising for us. You can't buy that kind of advertising. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. So what do you do in situations where try to build the cards for their monthly box or whatever payment method they have and it, it declines? Do you guys have a dunning strategy? Do you do customer outreach or does it cancel their subscription? Uh, yeah, no, all of the above. So we will do outreach to the customer. They'll get, they'll be notified that their payment was declined. We will try it again later on because there are cases where somebody, you know, there's a variety of reasons why it might fail. So sometimes it's, it might be something as like silly as like there was a, just an issue with the bank, you know, and maybe just trying again, it works. But uh, yeah, so we will reach out, let them know they have an opportunity to like update their payment method if they need to, if their card expired or something and they need to give us a new one. And then we'll try a few times. And then if ultimately we can't collect payment from them, they just don't get the shipment. And then I think... I don't recall exactly what the threshold is, but we do we do automatically churn out people that we are not able to successfully bill for a long enough period of time. So not if you skip that obviously doesn't count, but if you like leave your box in your club shipment and we try to bill you and it's unsuccessful, after that happens so many times, we churn those people out because we don't want it's like it's really doing us a disservice if we're saying like we have all these subscribers, but in reality, 30% of them, it's like a dead account where they're doing nothing. We can't sell them anything. So it's like, that's not really helping us. So we do actively churn those customers out every month. Well, I'm curious if current month's box, if they're declining and then let's just say recycle period goes over two weeks and then you're not able, do you wait until the next box and try again? Or are they churned out before even getting to the next cycle? Oh no, it's it's multiple months. I don't yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know the number. I wanna say it's three or four months. So we give them time to like, you know, maybe they're traveling or something or you know, who knows? <laughs> There's always very complicated scenarios with you get with customers. You never know what to expect. Absolutely. I asked that question because I've seen a lot of different business rules there. You know, there's some that are like, nope, we just try once and we cancel, and I'm going, Why do you do that? These are customers that are hard to get. <laughs> right. 
you should absolutely be retrying. And then others, I've even heard of much longer cycles of continuing to retry. So it was curious what your strategy was there. Sure, sure. It is. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about marketing. I mean, certainly, and I think a lot of people have even seen bespoke posts on television advertising and in a lot of different places. So can you talk a little bit of how that has evolved from the early days to kind of where you guys are now? And is it, where are you seeing as kind of the channels that are being effective? Because I think with a lot of box clubs, especially ones like yours that are very custom, influencer marketing is huge right now. And people that are on opening boxes and, you know, that sort of thing can go a long way. So what's working for you guys? Sure. So starting at the beginning, we were really, it was very kind of scrappy, word of mouth, organic, like get every organic opportunity you could. Uh, I mean, if you think back, like in 2011, 2012, back then people, Facebook wasn't like the advertising not. giant that it is now. Yeah. Like I actually uh, was <laughs> in prepping for this, I was... Uh, listening to something that our marketing, our head of marketing had, had said, and he was talking about in those early days, it was like, he was actually like, you know, stressing out really heavily about what is our social post on Facebook going to be today? Because an organic social post would drive traffic and would, you know, like you could actually reach people through like Facebook pages. And that, that really has kind of gone away in recent years, right? Like nobody's, nobody's posting as a brand, like organic content and having that uh, at least on Facebook and having it spread, spread widely and lead to like a big acquisition play. So that was really like the early days was, was that kind of stuff. And then more like affiliate kind of arrangements where we would give, whether it was like a podcast or a newsletter or any kind of like revenue share opportunities where it would be like, okay, if you can get us subscribers, we'll pay you for them. And that really just worked because for us, we were, didn't have cash back then. Right. So that was what we were working with. But then we were around and actively working in Facebook as, as that kind of started working for us, it was at least like the way that the marketing team has explained it to me is once we hit or once lookalike audiences on Facebook were became a thing that really worked super well for us where we could we could take something like, okay, people that have bought this product from us, let's get a lookalike audience on Facebook, advertise to them. And we were just having like tons of success with that. I want to say maybe that was 2013, 2014, something like that. Facebook really started working super well. And we just kept ramping Facebook up and up. And then I would say with, within a few years, it kind of became scary how well Facebook was working because then we're saying things like, okay, Facebook is phenomenal, but what happens if it stops working? We're like, we're so reliant on this one channel. And so we really spent a lot of time trying to diversify, trying things like Twitter, Pinterest, whatever else is, all the different networks that are out there that were offering advertising, like Google search, like we were just trying lots of different things. I don't think we ever really had anything perform as well as Facebook though, to be honest. But the growth of the business allowed us to like, we had Facebook working, it was consistent. So we had like some extra budget that we would allocate every month that we would use for channels outside of Facebook. And then of course, but it, it was really hard and tempting because the you always say like, where's the best place I could spend this next marketing dollar? And the answer is always Facebook, but it was more like, it probably can't just keep only using Facebook. And then we have had result, like pretty good results in other places, just without the scale that we're seeing on Facebook. And so today I would say 
we're definitely still in that, like Facebook is probably our biggest channel, but we're much more diversified. We definitely saw Facebook performance like decline a bit with iOS 14 and the stuff that's happened in the past year. It's still our best channel, I think, but it's not, it's not as like leaps and bounds above everything else as it once was, but also like the impacts of that changes to the ad market aren't just affecting Facebook and Instagram. It's affecting like lots of apps. So it's definitely been like a more challenging time for growth. And we've also tried lots of new channels. Like we're doing, like you alluded to, we're doing TV ads now. We've done some like out of home, like poster posters, billboard kind of stuff. We do a lot of content with, I guess what you'd say, like an influencer, like somebody on like YouTube, like who has a, a channel or podcasts or TikTok, that kind of stuff. I would say our marketing organization is like, they try a lot of things and they're always like asking everyone else what's working for you. They're pretty well connected to like a bunch of other like startups, especially in New York. Like I think there's, there's a community of folks there that like they all know each other. So they're all talking about what's working for you, what's working for you. Cool. Well, you talked about it a little bit there, but through the evolution, but I'm very curious, like what happened during COVID? Oh, sure. I mean, obviously for a lot of subscription companies, things went crazy online because that's the only place people could shop. Did you guys see a similar spike and how did you handle it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think like everybody else, we had a really series of like very rapid changes in 2020 where it went from this immediate like, uh-oh, what's going to happen here? Are people going to stop buying? Is the economy going to tank? Like, what's going to... We had just no clue what to expect. So we had that initial kind of scare where we, like, put on a hiring freeze and just kind of sat tight to just kind of see what could happen. But yeah, we were really fortunate to be, like, well-positioned for that, where we just saw business really take off. And there's a couple of things that really, I think, helped us there. One is that we're this multi-category offering, you know, a lot of subscription boxes or e-commerce even, it, sometimes it's very niche. Like maybe it's a single product or a single category. And so if that's not something that people are buying, like you're very much at the whims of the market of like, oh, right now home stuff was doing really well during that time, right? So if you were like selling stuff for people that were going out for the night, like dress clothes, for example, like that stuff was not selling, right? So for us, we have a diverse product offering. And so we're fortunate that some of the categories that we play in really kind of took off. So we were seeing things, we do like home, kitchen, bar, like all that kind of stuff was selling really well. And then as people started going outside, our outdoor and camping kind of products, those have always, or for, they've done well for us for the past few years, but then in COVID they went up like another notch. And so, yeah, no, it really, we had the, the past couple of years, we've had like phenomenal growth. And then more recently, as things are shifting again, I mean, you hear all the news stories, right, about like Target or Gap or other retailers talking about how they have too much inventory because they were buying the wrong things. For us, I mean, we, have, we do still have like challenges, but now we're seeing things like travel is picking up. So we have like a lot of travel, everyday carry, like different things that people will take when they're out and about. And so where the spend is happening has kind of shifted around. Has, has definitely, we're fortunate that we're diversified in that way. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but that's a really good point. I mean, your product is by definition diverse, right? It's about changing and sending different things every month. So you had that flexibility kind of built into the product from the beginning. I mean, I've talked to everything from those that sold cleaning supplies and food, who of course sold, got huge spikes at the beginning of COVID, but then things trail way back off. But you guys have that flexibility. But what about supply chain through that time? Did you just kind of, you know, go to the products you could actually get or how did you deal with that? 
Yeah. <laughs> sure. I mean, well, out of necessity, we had to do like the products that we could get. So there were definitely a lot of headaches on our operations team in 2020 and into 2021. But I think we did a couple of things. One is that, again, the diversity helps. Like if one particular supplier really can't get product out the door because maybe factories are shut down in their country or something, or shipping is hard. Well, we were getting some products from like other places in the world. So those, we had that thankfully. And then, yeah, we just were a little more conservative than we would be. Like it's always a balancing act, right? Where you don't want to stockpile too much inventory to totally protect from any kind of shortage because you just have tons of cash sitting in the warehouse as physical product, but you don't want to run too lean because then you're so when you have like little hiccups like this, you don't have boxes for your subscribers that month. So we had to try to, I think we ran a little more conservatively where we were planning backup boxes for months. So if we had something that we were planning to do for August, maybe we'd have it come in in July so that if we needed it as a July box, it was an option. And we would do things like that. We'd, we'd maybe be a little less aggressive about running right on the line of like what we thought, what our projections told us would sell and be a little more conservative. And I, I think, you know, every once in a while we've had a couple issues where maybe we were a little short on inventory, but never to the point where we couldn't fulfill or we couldn't like get a box for all of our customers. I mean, there are definitely a couple of times where we had to call up a vendor and say, hey, if we wanted 5,000 more units, could you do that? <laughs> if not, what can you do? <laughs> and you know, we had to get creative, but thankfully we were really lucky, I think, that we came through that as well as we did. And it was just like, probably accelerated the growth of the business quite a bit. Well, do you guys view yourselves as a box that fills necessities in a creative way or one that's entertainment or something in the middle? <laughs> um, I think we're kind of both. I think, I think it is kind of in the middle because there's some stuff some of the stuff we sell is really, you know, we sell consumable stuff. We sell things that are really can be nice parts of your everyday routine. But then we definitely have things that like aren't something that you need, but might be something that you might want or you might be interested in. You might not need like something like a brewing beer at home kit. It's like, you don't need that, but it could be a fun thing to do. And so those are the kind of things that, yeah, I would say that's more like fun to have, but yeah, I think again, the diversity of product lets us kind of play a little bit in both of those. Yeah. I was just kind of curious about that myself because looking through the boxes and thinking about it, it's like, oh, well, yeah, I kind of do need a new kitchen knife and that one looks pretty awesome down to things that are like, I don't really need that, but it would be neat to have, you know? So it's kind of like that it straddles both of those worlds. And especially through COVID, people are going online for both of those reasons, right? They want to, they need entertainment because they can't get it elsewhere. Right. And well, there's some necessities that they also need. For sure. For sure. Yeah. No, again, we were definitely able to kind of fulfill all of that. And, and that's always kind of been the vision, I think, for Bespoke Post was that like, ideally, we would be the place where our customers are thinking like, they need something or want something. And they would look to us to be like, ah, okay, they're going to have a nice selection that's like narrowed down to maybe a few options that have been like vetted by somebody I trust. So, you know, it's like, uh, I want to get some sunglasses. Uh, I'll go to Bespoke Post. I'm sure they'll have something. 
and they pick up a pair and we might not have, we're not going to have the variety that Amazon has, but that's by design. We're going to have a handful of choices that we think are good. And I think the other thing that, that people like about us is we're able to offer like a pretty good value. Like the volume that we do and the brands that we work with, we're usually offering like a pretty compelling value to our customers. And I think that's a big reason why people are excited about what we do. And so because of that, you can often get something that's cool, but also get it at like a great price point. Yeah. Do your suppliers, you think, view you as distribution or view you as sometimes marketing, like getting a product to market and in the hands of some people that they didn't have access to otherwise? I think this is, again, one of those ones where it's probably both. There are definitely brands, like maybe a more established, bigger brand, they might view us really more as like marketing. And then for some smaller brands, sometimes we're really a play for them to get volume to like bring their costs down. If we, there might be a company that's really struggling to get like sufficient order volume on their own so that they can bring their manufacturing costs down. And so partnering with us, we might be able to give, help them like achieve a unit volume that gets them the pricing that they want, gets a better arrangement with their factory, stuff like that. And then I think there are brands that are just, I don't know, they're just excited to work with us because they think our boxes are cool and they just want to be a part of it. And one thing that is really nice to see is that we have a lot of brands that have worked with us and they just like keep coming back. We've done multiple boxes with them. Yeah, right. So it's even though oftentimes we're negotiating like really good deals on the product. And so maybe we're getting a better deal than you could get somewhere else. They're still coming back to us, even though we've negotiated so hard with them because we're introducing them to a cool audience. It's a great experience. It really helps like spread the word about their product. Yeah, it really is kind of beneficial for the brands and the customers and us. Like it's one of those rare kind of things where it works really, really well. Yeah. Yeah. When it goes well, it works great for everybody. Cool. Yeah. Are there any, as we kind of wrap up here, are there any new features, new products, new things in the pipeline that you can talk about that are kind of big things that are coming next for Bespoke Post or? We're always trying new things, but a lot of times there may be like smaller, we do a lot of A-B testing. We do a lot of like experiments, try new features, but in terms of like a program, yeah, you know what I could talk about? We're launching a new thing or we've been launched, we launched it a bit ago, a program that we're calling like supercharging your club shipment. And so the idea there is that when you sign up for a box subscription, we give you an option to, for an extra $20 a month, we'll put an additional item that's unrelated to your box, but it's just another cool thing that our buyers have found out there that maybe didn't fit into a box or they got like a great deal or they just think it's cool that you can add that to your club shipment automatically. So it'll be when your club shipment is created on the first of the month, you'll get a box and then you'll also get this extra supercharge item. And it's always like a discount on retail value. And it's so a little incremental spend for them. And they can, it's just like the box. You can opt out, you can skip, you could. Do they get to see what it is or this is always a surprise? No, again, they get to see what it is. So it's just another thing added to your club shipment. And then we do something for our subscribers where we always give them, or I shouldn't say always, not on every product, but on many products in our shop, we're giving like subscriber pricing. So if you're a subscriber, you can get a better deal than if you're not a subscriber. So for the supercharge item, usually it's, I think always, in fact, or at least most of the time, it is 
discounted further. So it's like you're getting an even better deal than you would have got if you had just, you know, found the same item and bought it. So that's something that we launched a few months ago. We ran it as an experiment to kind of see how it was working. Early results seem positive. We haven't released it to like everybody yet, but we have been trying different ways of messaging it, different points in like the experience to introduce it. But I think most people now, if they sign up like through our organic experience, like you go to the homepage and sign up for a subscription, I believe everybody's getting the option to sign up for that now. Okay. So the response rates have been good on that? One thing that we see is that we always look at a bunch of metrics. And so there's almost always trade-offs. And so it seems like it is beneficial to the business, although it does maybe, if people are buying more in their club shipment, there might be like, there are some customers who then like maybe less inclined to buy a box or maybe they buy less frequently. So it, there's always trade-offs, but it seems to be like a, a net positive at the moment. So um, we're still kind of evaluating it, but that's something that we've been working on. And that was kind of a fun project um, to introduce like a new program like that. Interesting idea. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. Jared, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been some fun things to talk about today. They're definitely in my wheelhouse. So I definitely love talking about payments and fulfillment and technology and, and those sorts of things. So I've really enjoyed it. Obviously, the website is bespokepost.com, very easy to find and get to. But if listeners have any questions about maybe something we talked about today, maybe wants to reach out, what are the best ways to do that? And yeah, reach out. We have like a contact page. You can reach out to our CX team that I was talking about before. They're, they're world-class. Literally, they won an award for being a phenomenal CX organization. So yeah, they'll take care of you. And of course, if you always are like interacting with us on social media, like, yeah, the team takes care of you there too. Well, cool. Well, thanks so much. Really appreciate the time today and best of luck. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scaled, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network. 